Double J, Jeff Jarrett, here with a few of my pals to tell you about the total nonstop savings happening over at SaveWithConrad.com. Daniel Ortiz in Angelo, Texas. We had four large financial unexpected emergencies, and I knew that I needed something to give us a little more breathing room. And when he mentioned we can skip two house payments and wipe out credit card debt and loan debt, so that's exactly what I did. I called them and it did change everything. Diane, she was awesome. She was professional. And the important thing with her is she listened. That's what made all the difference in the world. She was patient. And anytime that I needed to talk to her, she was there. She texted back. It was a different experience from any other place. Well, I can tell you the difference that it made was over $80,000 for us. It freed up that much. My credit score went up 126 points with Save with Conrad, which made it an 802. My name is Daniel Ortiz, and I freed up $80,000 with SaveWithConrad.com. In my world, it doesn't get any better than five stars. Find out how much money Conrad and his team can save you by strutting over to SaveWithConrad.com. So right now, Strut on over to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! So the February 16th episode is where you told us the story earlier. Randy was supposed to get this hard way blood yeah. uh, and punching you over the eyebrow. Um, <laughs> of course, we know it doesn't really go expe- as exactly as we would have expected. Uh, Orton it still hit looks Foley good. It looks really good. Okay, what's this uh, is Meltzer? Orton hit Foley with seven hard shots in the temple, and he legit injured his hand in doing so. <laughs> Foley had major swelling near his temple from all the punches that the cameras on Raw this week were ordered to avoid <laughs> to concentrate on shooting the blackened and bloodshot eye. The eye didn't get discolored after the beating, but as Foley likely wanted it to, since this angle had been the, his creation from the start, Many people in the company were skeptical of the first part of it when he walked out on Orton, disappeared for six weeks, and was constantly branded a coward. Uh, but the company has finally agreed to it. So <laughs> the next week, which you sort of alluded to, Foley used no makeup on the 23rd Raw skit with Jim Ross. He actually did an interview with Coach in midweek. Mm-hmm. Vince hated it and said he wouldn't let it air. So he did the second interview with... Uh, with JR and, and he says Foley is unique in that he doesn't want to use makeup for the angle. But nowadays when you can do it with makeup, it's just done so often. I often wonder whether risking eyesight problems to make it more legit when 70 to 95% of the audience will believe it was makeup anyway is worth it. In hindsight, is Meltzer on something? Yeah, yeah, he is. Um, I have some problems, you know, with my right eye. You might see me occasionally blinking. You think it's from that? Yeah. I do. You can see in photos uh, sometimes that the uh, movement isn't the same. Uh, and Tara and um, Robert Fuller was my, you know, my hard, hard way guru. And he told me it was dangerous. And he said, nothing more effective at creating realism, but it's dangerous. And in this case, you know, with Randy, it's not much difference, not much distance between the temple and the eyebrow. But he hit me seven times in a row in that temple. So it was another another one of these things, just like with the uh, 
the super fortified uh, hardcore title case that uh, Randy hit me with. You know, it was a worst case scenario. Like that eye is so swollen up and not a drop of blood, but it would play out. I have to think, oh, I like to think that fans would know it was real. Like, it, uh, like you No, can, it felt real because felt the real. spit felt real. Yeah. Everything about this felt real. And I think the highest form of flattery I got is that when I returned home, my son Mickey, so we're talking 2004, he would have been three, he said, Daddy, bad lady. Because to him, being ugly was the heels in the Disney movies. The bad ladies were the ones that, you know, the, the, the hag in, uh, in Snow White, uh, you know, the stepmother in Cinderella, and uh, Urs uh, Ursula, and uh, the Mermaid. one. Yeah, yeah, and also Sleeping Beauty, yeah. uh, the one that Angelina Jolie went on to play. So when he, that was his way of describing how bad I looked. And we've got a couple great photos, you know, of, you know, me with the kids. And that was a shiner to end all shiners. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty significant. So in Atlanta, that Foley memory is right. Uh, you're finally saved. Show ended with Foley coming out. Evolution sends Triple H, who had left to get the strippers ready, came out for their gangland beating. <laughs> Orton again challenged Foley to a singles match. Foley said he knew there was no such thing as a singles match, so he wanted a partner for a two-on-three. They screwed up a little here, since everyone in Atlanta knew Rock was coming, since he'd been advertised, and that's why everyone bought tickets. <laughs> Even though it was in USA Today, most viewers at home wouldn't have known it. So instead of a big pop when Foley announced his partner... Orton basically said, we all know who it is, Mr. Hollywood and Mr. Walking Tall. They did act like Rock wasn't there and told Foley to call him up. Foley left the ring and Rock ran in. So in hindsight... But he's leaving out the, the important thing about, I'm going to call him right now. I'm going to call him right now. And bailing out of there, like almost power walking and then turning around going, instead of me calling him, boom, here, here it comes. So it was... Yeah, it was unfortunate that Rock had been advertised, but I don't think it hurt the pop. Uh, another one, I'll go on record, Road Warrior-esque. After the show, it's uh, Rock and Austin in the ring for 30 minutes, cracking jokes on the mic. This has to be fun. <laughs> Just with Yeah, yeah, cause, because Steve was, the, uh, Steve was, I don't know what they're calling a GM then. By then, I think it was GM instead of commissioner. And Steve felt like he couldn't do what he did physically, but he still had the ability to entertain people. Yeah. And he would do those great things where he would say, Lillian, you know, he'd get down on his uh, one knee and like he was proposing to Lillian. He said, put his hand in her, her hand and he said, Lillian, would you get me a damn beer? Like there was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, and Rock and I had that history when we were the Rock and Sock Connection of being out there for 10 minutes. We didn't put in as much time as Steve did, but just entertaining people when the cameras, I guess in some respect, cameras are never really off, but when the USA cameras are off and you're just doing it for the love of entertaining and because you want people to go home with smiles on their faces. Well, they had smiles the next day. We're going to be talking about some tag titles. Your very first WrestleMania. Yeah. Does it feel like it's been 25 years since 1997? It does not yeah. for me. In some, time, in some ways, it feels like it's been a blink of an eye. Uh, but in other ways, yeah, I have to go back and realize 25 years. I've got a lot of anniversaries yeah. coming up. Technically, uh, this was my first WrestleMania because I debuted the day after WrestleMania 
1996. We've already covered yeah. the whole idea. I got my um, information package that said Mutilator on it. <laughs> uh, WrestleMania then is not what it is now. Right. It's not WrestleMania week. It was WrestleMania weekend. You'd get there probably on a Thursday. Uh, and then you were off to the next town on a Monday. You didn't come back and do the same city right. like you do now, which is great for the, the men and women. I have to resist the urge to say it's great for the guys. Right. If I say guys from this moment on, you know, the guys is guys and gals of everybody in the dressing room. And that was always really difficult to come, to peak for emotionally for your WrestleMania match. Get back in your car either that night or the next day. Usually you drive the next day because of the post-WrestleMania party. But the party made it even more difficult because now you have to try to peak after the party where yeah. you've had the world's best shrimp cocktail <laughs> a directive of Mr. McMahon. And so it is a better deal today for the guys and women in the dressing room. Uh, but WrestleMania was still a big deal. Uh, I watched the first one. I watched 96 from the crowd. Saw the Brett and Sean Iron Man. How did you watch crowd. it from the crowd? Uh, Throw a baseball hat on? And well, I had the baseball hat on. And also, I don't think as many WWF fans were as familiar with Cactus Jack as you might think. Right. Um, there were some crossover fans. But it was, uh, uh, this 1996, I'd estimate about 25% of the WWF wow. fans. You know, the internet, well, there wasn't really an internet fans, but you're talking sure. about your, uh, your sheet readers, uh, your insiders, they knew. I'd say about 25% of the audience knew. And I think I went up there and watched from the crowd just for that final match. And because that's the match everyone wanted to see, yeah. they're not focused on you. And I think I was in the, on the hard, you know, hard camera area. Uh, where the WWF would put friends and family. Right. Uh, but it wasn't a situation where you had a suite filled with 100 people. Right. It was just me and somebody who worked in uh, PR at the time, and we took in that. I've always loved to watch the big matches in person. It's different. So even when I was the, the, the commissioner, the GM, if something was big, I would go out there so I could absorb the atmosphere. And feel it. Yeah, I'd be part of it. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Eventually, we probably were bound to. But I've developed a reputation online for hating that match. <laughs> and I love Shawn Michaels. Oh, the, the, I love Bret Hart. Yeah, the Iron yeah. Man match. But that WrestleMania 12 match, I just feel like the concept of it being an Iron Man match made it less fun for me. I think some of the fun of wrestling is, is he going to hit his big when. move? This yeah. could be it. Yeah. And the edge of the seat anticipation is gone. If I know, well, just watch the last five minutes and, and you got it. And so... I found myself fast forwarding that match to the end and I missed a lot of great action. I missed yeah. a lot of great stuff, but I just think from a psychology standpoint of taking the fans on a ride of, oh, he got it. No. And it, Cause even if he does, it ain't over. Yeah. And the idea that it could end at any minute, I don't, I think the Iron Man stipulation is maybe the worst. Now I don't mean the silliest, like so-and-so on a pole, Judy Bagel on a pole or whatever, but uh, <laughs> the Iron Man thing, I, I think any other, uh, g g stipulation would have made that match more enjoyable. What say you? An hour is a long time for all but the most diehard fans. Hour is a long time. Yeah. So I look at like the NXT classic that Bailey and Sasha had. Yes. 30 minutes. I like a 30 minute Iron Man. Yeah. Iron Woman. Uh, I also think I would have liked to have seen more falls. Yes. The one to nothing. Oh, man. You know, I'd like to see three to two. 
I don't know what it was like behind the scenes, if uh, the both men were resistant to, you know, to uh, losing a fall or if they thought that would make uh, the the one less meaningful. Maybe. I would say that in, a, you know, soccer, okay, for the international audience, football, I'd rather see a 3-2 game yes. than a one nothing game. Yes. Uh, I, I don't think it reduces the importance of the three and the two. I remember when I was in WCW, we had a... Uh, uh, like a Texas death match type of tag team match in uh, Chicago at the UIC Pavilion. And that was a pretty strong market for us. And it was uh, me and Rick Rude against uh, Sting and and Ricky Steamboat. And so we're talking some, you know, some major talent out yeah. there and, and me, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we started to try to put something together and uh, came to the falls and nobody really wanted to drop a fall. And uh, I was like, you can beat me as many times as you want because I'm going to continue to get up and that will only make, I don't know if I shared that with the guys, my feeling like, oh, I had beat me five, pin me five times. But I'm not saying that. That means I'm, yeah, I will get up four times. And so I always, I, I hate to think that ego got in the way of that, uh, I thought it was a great match. Oh, for sure. Great match. Um, I love the, the super kick on the... Was oh, it, yeah. yeah. Was it the timekeeper? It uh, looks like he put all of it into that probably, super kick. Too. probably did, right? Yeah. Probably, you you uh, relieve the recipient of the need to know how to sell by yes. putting all of it into that. You take yes. that out of his hand. Um, and so I thought it was a great match, and it was built up the childhood dream, and Sean had the amazing entrance. It was a moment, guys. for sure. Yeah, I, I would, I, I think, yeah, maybe they would have been better served by a different stipulation. It feels like to me if it was a, a 3-0 Super Bowl, like a great defensive battle Super yeah. Bowl, but when it was over, people would say, well, that sucked. I'd rather it be 27-24. Yeah. It's still a three-point victory, but let's put some points on the board. I'm with you. But I, I do like your approach from, hey, uh, beat me four times. I'm going to keep getting up. But that makes you look like a Superman, right? You just so keep I coming. felt about it. I was surprised that um, I didn't have more cooperation. And so that was the night of many defeats for me, and I felt like it only made me stronger. When do you think that changed in the business or has it changed? Because it does feel like wins and losses in time, everybody sort of to come around to your way of thinking. Well, you can't, you can't get beaten like a drum right. continually. The message has to be sent from the company in some way that this is a guy worth paying attention to. Right. And you've seen, like I feared just uh, going back a few weeks, uh, Finn Balor came out without music on Raw. And yeah. I went, oh, God. This, that's the problem with having a great entrance is that when you no longer have a great entrance, uh, a major arrow's been taken out of your quiver. And yeah. so I was shocked when he actually won the title from Damian Priest. But there's an example. Of, oh, man, they took, it, they, they, took that, uh, they took that big entrance away from him. That's a signal to the fans that we're not supposed to take him as seriously when, in truth, it was probably just a timing Right deal, especially given that he won the championship. But when I went into WE, when I went into WWF at the time, let's call it what it was, yeah. right? I think you're allowed to prep for that at the time. Um, there was still the old timer feeling that you can't get beaten on television. Mm -hmm. That um, I read you know, Honky Talk Man probably this day believes you know you can't get beaten on TV, 
And I, I remember Harley saying to me to watch it because I was losing a lot. You know, he said, you have to watch those wins and losses. And then you also get yourself in a position like when I was in uh, TNA and then switched over and did a, a few matches with, uh, oh no, I with WWE from 2005, 2008, did a handful of matches. TNA, I did, uh, you know, a handful of pay-per-views and some TVs. And there was a young man, uh, Chris Giordano, who lived in Seaford, uh, New York, who I actually name-dropped on Raw. And WWE wanted to know about this guy. Like, what's this? Well, he was a young man with uh, cerebral palsy. And um, uh, I used to go with my kids to his house. And we watched the pay-per-views. And he had an elevator, you know, that, uh, and my kids, that might as well bet as an, at an amusement park because they love going up and down in the elevator. Uh, and so Chris would get concerned about my matches and get upset when I lost until his dad told me he came to realize that I always lost. <laughs> so that he wasn't as upset about it. Uh, and I think that's where you run the danger. If you're no longer a threat to win yeah. and you can't uh, help people suspend their disbelief because they know, or at least they feel and have reason to feel that you are going to lose that match, that's not good. But uh, I, think, I think things started to change when the wrestling wars heated up, when there was more of an emphasis on good matches mm -hmm. taking place on a regular basis because most of the uh, viewers had grown up in an atmosphere where they watched squash matches. Yes, absolutely. And a win was a win, and a loss was a loss. There was really no gray area. There were there were top guys. There were uh, and there was enhancement talent. There were gray gray area guys like when I was growing up watching WWF. It was a uh, like an SD Jones might score a victory, and as he got older, as some of the guys got older, like Chief J Strongbow. You'd see, a, you know, an instant spark and you'd see the sleeper hold and then the match would be over fairly quickly. But he was still Chief J Strongbow. That's right. So, uh, But I think when when the wars heated up and you had to put good matches on on a regular basis, there was more of a uh, you could accept that good wrestlers could lose matches. And I think uh, as you... Uh, ingratiated yourself, or hopefully that's the right name, you know, as you made yourself part of someone's uh, Monday night or Tuesday, whatever the case might be, and they felt like they knew you, in some cases, losing could actually help you. Yeah. Uh, I think you go back to uh, uh, when Becky Lynch had her big breakthrough when she attacked Charlotte. And uh, and somebody in the house, I think I was with my family, I don't know who I was watching the pay-per-view at which house, it might have been at Chris's house. Somebody said, why are they saying you deserve it to Charlotte? They were chanting. I said, no, I think they're chanting you deserve it to Becky. I said, well, what does she deserve? I said, I think they understand that this is a moment, that this is a push. And so you do get that goodwill accru accrued from uh, being treated. I think it's a fine line. Because you're not doing as well as you, the company's not treating you as well as you feel as you feel that talent should be treated. You're on one side of the line, getting beaten like a drum. You're on the other side, and then you lose, you just uh, lose that emotional connection to that person, and you yeah. cast them off. I think in the same reason why, in when you're a young man or young woman, and you have crushes and you're falling in love for the first time, 
you don't put your heart out there if you know it's going to get stomped on. Yes. Right. You'll take a chance in love if you think there's a reason. And I, I this is probably a, a foolhardy, uh, you know, comparison because men and women in love do ridiculously dumb things. Yes. But there are times when you don't put your heart out of the line because you know it's going to get crushed. Right. So you don't make that emotional connection with that character or you lose that emotional connection because you know you're going to get hurt in the long run. So uh, let's talk about WrestleMania. Your match begins with a Rock promo. Uh, Lillian's going to uh, start with you, and then Rock just takes over, talking about Hurricane and Rosie, and Lillian just can't wipe the smile off her face. Uh, it's really good stuff. Um, you guys go 17 minutes and three seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say, uh, Flair was in WrestleMania shape. Here's the real backstory. When Rock was a kid, he used to say, when I grew up, I don't want to be like my dad, but if I can't be like my dad, I want to be like Ric Flair. Rock was just mimicking Flair strut and having fun doing all the Flair spots. Uh, Foley even did an elbow off the apron on Flair, and Flair had taken a backdrop on the floor. Flair or Foley has lost about 50 pounds, down to around 285, so he wouldn't be in bad shape for his return. Batista went to work on Rock. Batista still doesn't get it, but since everyone else in the match does, it wasn't a factor. Flair got slammed off the top, and Lawler was almost treating it as comedy. Flair did, uh, Foley did well. Again, there's major context problems between the buildup and what the match was, yeah. but it was good nonetheless. Orton and Foley actually went at it early instead of saving it for later. Orton sent Foley knees first into the steps. Foley was pounded on, including a ground-and-pound spot by Batista that he broke up with the claw. Flair and Foley worked, and I think that this was the first time the two were ever in the ring in match form. Flair did the people's elbow tease. Rock did the elbow on Flair on a rock bottom on Orton, but Flair saved. Batista hits the demon bomb on Rock, and Orton goes for the pin, but Rock kicks out. That allows the hot tag to Foley, who does the double-arm DDT on Orton, and pulls out Mr. Sacco, but before he could do it, Orton beat him to the punch with an RKO and a pin. The crowd went nuts for Foley after the match anyway, and he did the old Hogan after the Warrior match routine, three and three-quarter stars. So Dave doesn't give it a glowing review, but it is remembered fondly. Yeah, but I think what he said about the context problem that's your issue built up to be a blood feud. Blood feud. And now and we're it, doing comedy. It, you, there was elements of comedy in there. That was great comedy between Rick and but out Rob. of context, for probably the out build. of context. Yeah, um, but that's probably you know. I'm not saying we're acquiescing, but that's probably what Flair and Rock wanted to do, right? And so it became more about what they yeah. wanted to do and less about what you and Randy needed I to do. I crawled into a, I retreated into a shell. I don't think I spoke up and offered that opinion. So that's really your issue. It's not necessarily what happened bell to bell, but you didn't interject beforehand. I didn't interject, and I didn't take steps to make it the best match that I, the best performance that I could have. And then I was just so happy to see those guys. It was almost like I dreaded getting the tag because I didn't feel like I, I just. I know, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here when I talk about how disappointed I was in myself. But, you know, the, the success I had in my career was about overcoming doubts and conquering those uh, insecurities. And on that day, I, you know, I lost out to those insecurities and those doubts. Pretty famous story you've shared when you come backstage and you run into Steve Austin. 
Do you want to share oh, that with us? Refresh my memory. I know he, he was. He asked, it would have been the easiest thing to to pat me on the back and say it was good. I think the idea was, and he didn't do that. You asked, "How did you think you did out there?" And he said, "I thought it was okay." And he said, "I thought it sucked." Or something like yeah. that. The idea being, you were trying to maybe convince yourself it was okay, yeah. but he could tell you weren't satisfied with it. Right. And he didn't feel like maybe you delivered the way you had in the past. That was the insinuation yeah. from the conversation that's been shared over the years. Uh, in the yeah, book. and that I, I think he uh, he knew that you know I had been greatly outshone and then willingly outshone. And that uh, it wasn't a match. Again, the context should have been a wild brawl. You yes. Know? So uh, three and three quarters stars is, uh, you know, on Mania for two guys. I was at my first match in four years. It's a handicap match. Handicap match. essentially a celebrity and an older gentleman in Flair. Uh, yeah. I mean, not bad. Yeah, right, right. Not bad. And maybe if I watched it back and I didn't know what, the the scene you know the feelings were in my own head but it definitely lit a fire i don't know if it was on paper for us to have a, a rematch right away that's what i wanted to ask it came out in the observer that it really bubbled out of wrestlemania weekend so that yeah. wasn't the plan in advance like in theory this was the original blow yeah. off yeah but maybe you're like no i can do better i, I think vince sat me down and uh talked to me about having uh, a singles match um, and I don't know if he shared my feeling that Mania had been a disappointment for me, especially. Sorry about that. It felt uh, more like an attraction as opposed to a conclusion. A yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was happy to do the favor for Randy. It was really nice that the crowd gave me that response. I remember Rock literally going like this to me to let me have that moment. Uh, when I saw photos of myself, I just looked so drained. And you can't <laughs> this can't fake passion. But you also can't fake conditioning. You know, like that's what's good. There's a saying that says, you know, um, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Yes, sir. You know, and I, it certainly does. But it also it greatly reduces your ability to um, put on a show if you're drawn. If you can't so, breathe, uh, you can't breathe, and it's just this withered, drawn. You just look drawn and exhausted, and that's not a good look. Um, so had I not had that opportunity to come back with Randy one-on-one, uh, -on -one, that match would have bothered me. It obviously still does, but it would have it would have eaten me up. So you, from your memory, Vince brings you that match. You don't necessarily bring it to Vince, right? He sits me down in his office, yeah, and proposes that match. But uh, today we're talking about mankind. Yeah. The Observer wrote this. Cactus Jack, who had just moved from New York to Atlanta, was thought due to his look and style to be a wrestler the WWF would never be interested in, but times have changed. He said to be very close to going, with some saying it could be shortly after the Royal Rumble. Heyman supposedly told WWF officials, which have been attempting to make friends rather than enemies, that he didn't want to lose Jack until he could finish this current program and said that would be April of 1996, and the WWF said they were in no hurry to bring him in. The WWF is also looking at ECW as a place where they can send their own wrestlers to get work next year, since they aren't going to be running as many house shows, and guys are already complaining about not getting enough dates. Jack is longtime friends with uh, Troy Martin, the WWF's Dean Douglas, 
who was well known to be unhappy in his situation in Titan, which may prove to be a factor as well. Which does make me want to ask, did you talk to Shane about that? Because, oh, yeah. boy, he did not have the best experience. <clears throat> yeah, I did. Yeah, Shane was uh, <laughs> Shane wasn't high on the idea of, uh, of going there. Um, and, and as crazy as it sounds now, looking at The Undertaker, it was thought by some of the key people in the business that he'd already had his run. That 96. So he came in uh, Survivor Series in 90. Yep. Six years. Some people thought it's a great gimmick. It's run its course. Um, Undertaker was looking to make uh, some changes in his style. I think uh, if you look at The Undertaker's incredible uh, winning streak at Mania, not all those matches were five star classics. No, sir. There was a long series. You know, it was just. They would put him in a program with someone who was bigger than him in yes. some way. So whether it was Giant Gonzalez being taller than him, it was uh, Kamala uh, being Bundy. Heavy, Bundy, yeah. So you weren't getting, you know, and then, you know, Snook, when he wrestled Snooka, Snooka was a little past his prime at that point. And I think, uh, not that Snooka was bigger than Undertaker, but they had gravitated towards that by those final years. He didn't have the best opponents. Yeah, and I can't, I've never even had it verified. I've never even asked Mark if he was the guy who said, I want to work with this guy, because I went from being a, um, you know, a character that Vince was bringing in uh, for the sole purpose of breaking Jim Ross's heart to somebody who started out on uh you know like near the top of the card by coming out i did have a match with bob holly uh my opening match was with bob holly but on that same episode of raw i um came out of the uh crowd or came down to the uh, down the aisle i jumped the undertaker and we were off to the races i thought i found it a little odd especially in hindsight that dave mentioned that you moved from new york to atlanta I mean, I guess at the time, you know, there's the spiritual home of the WWF, which is New York, not Connecticut. Right. And, of course, Atlanta's the backyard. But that doesn't seem... Well, there's a reason. Uh, the reason behind it is we owned a home in Atlanta. Right. When I was working steadily in Japan, um, my and my wife had worked herself into phenomenal shape after having two children. And uh, she wanted to give the modeling a try. And that's a New York thing. So we rented our house for six months, and for the six months I was on Long Island, it made traveling a lot easier because we we uh, flew northwest. I'm sure Delta had a nonstop, but that's not what I was flying. So I was flying northwest, uh, and then uh, northwest would, had, had nonstop flights uh, to Tokyo from New York. Um, and also my parents were there. Yeah. It was great to see my parents. But when we ba went back to Atlanta, it was because I had landed the WWE job. Uh, we had decided that my wife had, she'd gotten some work, but not enough to uh, explain away giving up, you know, what was a really nice little home, right? yeah. a little nice little home there in a, a suburb of Atlanta. That's why we went back. Gotcha. So uh, what do you think of the report that Paul Heyman says, oh, I'm not done with him yet. I need him to April. <laughs> I mean, that, that feels What's a up? little different than uh, the way it was originally explained of, oh, no, you're better than this. Oh, but not yet. Um, but both things could have happened. Yeah. You know, both things could have happened. I was, I was, I, I would argue that I believe it was always the plan to come out the day after Mania. Uh, they weren't in a rush. 
Um, I had, I had, well, and another thing is I had said to Vince um, that I, I, I wanted to finish my commitments in Japan. He said, have you signed a contract? I said, no. And he looked at me and said, so you want to do dates based on a handshake and not a contract? I said, uh, yes, if I could. He said, that's the type of man I want working for me. Because yeah. at that point, he'd had a lot of departures, guys that he probably thought would never leave. Um, and so I think he liked the idea of someone who was sticking to his word based on a handshake. So I would I continued to do the Japanese tours. I continued to do ECW, but now I took the I took the steam off of WCW as part of my anti-hardcore gimmick. Uh, because I went from the Forgive Me, Uncle Eric airbrushed shirt, which was a classic, yeah. the Dungeon of Doom, you know, because that that was like the antithesis of what ECW fans wanted. And then when when you know, of course the ECW fans would know before anyone, the word got out I was heading to WWF. And I don't think I was forbidden from mentioning it, mentioning it because we did incorporate it into the character. And so instead of Forgive Me Uncle Eric, I had the WWFNF t-shirt. Yeah. And I started talking about uh, WWF. So it was a, it was known that I was going, going. there. Yeah. yeah. And now here you are back on Monday Night Raw, December 1st, 2003. You're going to fire Test, Scott Steiner, and La Resistance. Of course, uh, you're firing heels. Uh, the show ends with you putting Mr. Sacco down Eric Bischoff's throat and Maybe there's a little personal satisfaction on that. I Why think not? there was. Uh, the next week on Raw, The Rock returns in Anaheim to save you from the two-on-one beatdown from La Resistance. Uh, oh, from... Wow, I don't remember that. I thought yeah, you the, thought maybe just outside of Atlanta. I thought the only time The Rock came back was to set up the Mania match, and I thought it was outside Georgia. I don't remember him coming back against La Resistance. Um... When do you know that The Rock is, is officially figured in? Is it? I know you told us about the phone call yeah. from Brian, but that doesn't happen in the initial sit-down with you, Vince, and JR. No, because I wouldn't. I would have thought that's too ludicrous to propose. The Rock's going to come back to be my partner in Mania. That, that doesn't sound like something I thought would be feasible on the table. So once we knew Rock was coming back, we begin setting that table by putting me through, uh, might be jumping ahead here, but when it gets to me actually being on the show, being on Raw regularly, I start taking a pretty serious beating every, every time I go out there. You know, I'm being put through a, a table, a powerbomb by Batista, getting slapped in the face where it has to look good by Randy. You know, I was taking my lumps. I know I'm forwarding ahead to the uh, showdown for the singles match. But, you know, when I pulled him aside, I think we were in um, in California. Uh, I think we were in Bakersfield. And I went up to Randy and I said, hey, sometimes in this business you make your own breaks. He goes, what do you mean? I said, uh... I want you to go out there. I want you to open up this eyebrow. Just gotta, I give him a quick tutorial, thinking he's got it in his DNA like the Fullers did or the Funks did. And then Randy, you know, basically, basically they're not a drop of blood. It doesn't, it's not the downward thing, but he puts a bunch of swelling up under my eye, uh, which doesn't necessarily look that great on camera. It does, it's disturbing. 
because I mean, I was going out, you know, I'm getting hit, 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 and eventually I think power bombed and not a drop of blood. But within about three days now, all that internal bleeding starts mm. sinking down and gives me the worst, worst uh, black eye I've ever had. And I've had some pretty good ones. So I say that this needs to be documented. And I asked to come into Stanford to be interviewed. And I am interviewed by Jonathan Coachman. And uh, I'm surprised when Brian Gewertz calls me and says, Vince wants you to come back and do the interview over. He said it's the worst work of your career. <laughs> the interview I did with Coachman. So I joked and said, hey, if he'd said it was the worst work of Coachman's career, that would really be saying something, right? Yeah. So Coach was more caught up in a, being in a heel persona. He wasn't... He, Playing the straight man in that he was, Yeah, he was, yeah it wasn't doing anything for the, uh, for the angle. So they flew Jim Ross in to interview me and that made a big difference. But that's one of those things where, you know, on paper, the idea of bringing somebody back Another three-hour round trip, another two hours in the bill. That's a lot, you know, a lot of extra work. We've already yeah. got something in the can. Surely you could edit it, but he felt strongly like it was bad, that it was going to hurt the angle, and asked if I would do it over again, and I did it gladly. So, how excited are you to uh, to see Dwayne? You know, when he, when he makes his return, I'm sure you get to spend some time with him before you get going. Yeah, uh, you know. This is a weird thing to say, but he's gone on to become the biggest star in the world. Right. Maybe he wasn't quite at that point, but, but you just can tell. Did, yeah, he'd done the game plan. Uh, you know, he was game plan, I think, was his biggest one at that time. He was clearly an A-lister and, uh, you know, soon to be the biggest star in the world. What had changed from Dewey, who you met back yeah, in the yeah, day, yeah. to now he really is a yeah, big star. right. And so to have him on my side, kind of like being my knight in shining armor, uh, it was it was really cool. It was really cool. We were afraid that people would know he was going to be there. So I think evolution even alluded to it. Uh, where's Mr. Hollywood? And I was like, I, I think the way we did it is like they're bullying me, right? There's three of them. You know, why don't you go out there and make a phone call to your friend in Hollywood? And then I go, okay, I'm going to do that. And I almost over-exaggerate it. Like, I'm going to go run up there, you know, use the payphone. And I turn around and I said, no, better than me calling him. Why don't I introduce you to him now? And here comes Dwayne Johnson running down the ramp. Uh, and I think, you know, Conrad, I think he was so busy kicking butt that he forgot to take names that day. <laughs> so, that's how... Fully caught up and kicking butt he was that day. So let's talk about how we got here. The event is March 16th, 1994. You're in Germany to take on Vader. Uh, but let's talk about just those WCW European tours. Yeah. This is a time where here domestically, frankly, the house show business is not what we would call strong. Mm -hmm. But it seems like when you go overseas, you're going to have a much bigger house. But, boy, it was a, a different way of life compared to, quote-unquote, making towns here in America, was it not? Yeah, yeah. I, w I never really liked... I liked the freedom of being in a rental car. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I loved about uh, wrestling. I loved making the towns, for the most part. And uh, in WCW, uh, my first year there, until Abdullah and company parted ways, I was with Abdullah. 
they waived the you know, th three wrestler limit. You know, you had to have a minimum of three. For me and Abby, they let us go two, and they let me uh, rent a, a caddy. So I haven't rented a caddy since '91 <laughs> because it's, you know it's it's not in the it's not in the budget. Um, but so we, I enjoyed riding with Abby. I enjoyed making those towns. I did not, I didn't enjoy being with the group all the time, 24-7. That's too much. I'm, I'm, I love the boys and the women, but I'm kind of a loner. You know, I, I like my hotel room. You know, I like my long drives. Um, so it was different. And also, not, uh, we were doing some, uh, some shows in eastern, the old eastern Germany, which was, it was run down it was d dirtier it wasn't real cheerful you know when you're doing you weren't in a tourist town right we weren't in a tourist town you know we did we did the tour of dresden you know because of its uh you know uh it's a famous famous city in the course of human events um but coming back to munich munich is a western town um it still had this feeling of dreariness to it you know the the whole tour did uh, I think it had that feeling of dreariness for me because I had worked so diligently on my German. Made it clear to the powers that be that I could cut promos in German and do interviews in German. And this is where you, you read the writing on the wall. When one by one the WCW stars are being brought onto TV shows and whatnot, and here's the guy who worked on the German, speaks to German, cuts by, and you're not using him. I, I thought I was an intentional. You know, this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna risk sounding bitter, but if I uh, but if I'm gonna be honest, I was I was bitter about it. I felt uh, you know I was slighted. I was bitter enough about it, uh, and felt slighted enough that I gave my notice after this incident. This is where I read really read the writing on the wall, and thought man. Ah, this is wrestling. This is the one line of business where losing an ear is not only not a bad thing, but it could be a great thing. It doesn't matter that Leon did not actively help me get out or that he did not actively put me in there. I was in a match with Vader where my ear was ripped off my head, and that's uh, that seems like a as much as close to a license to print money in WCW as we had. It didn't matter that we worked eight, six months earlier on a pro, this is boom, this is new, coming out of the gates hot. And when I saw none of that happening in the buildup and none of that in the aftermath, and then given the, the conversation I had with Rick on the night of the show, which was that they were going to turn me back heel. So the night of the event, yeah. you met with Rick, I assume before. Yeah, before. And does this happen in the arena? It's in the arena, yeah, yeah. And so we had he a comes long... over and says, hey, Cactus, I want to talk to you. Yeah, sort of we had a long talk, and it was based almost exclusively around, and this is what I took from it. Right? Rick might have another, you know, he might say, no, this here was the basis of the conversation. What I took from it almost exclusively was that the beatings I had taken at the hands of Vader, uh, Rick said they're most brutal beatings he'd seen, didn't result in a jump in the ratings. This is a time when they're judging the ratings not by 15-minute increments, but by two-hour ratings. And you and I discussed before that we shouldn't be so beholden yeah. to the ratings, that they might tell a different tale, and you can't tell what percentage of those people are 
into it on a two on a scale of one to ten or into it on a ten. Yes. And if you're losing some of the ones and twos, but you're gaining more of the eights and nines and tens who are heavily into it, it's something that I could see and feel when I was out there. Like, I felt like I was one of the top guys in the company, and I felt like the babyface run had worked and that I could work with just about anybody in the company and have a good match. Uh, at the time, they were now teaming me up with... Uh, uh, Max Payne, and I liked Max, but I also understood it was a little bit of a, a step down from those main event probes, sure. which I was okay with because I'd watched a lot of wrestling, uh, especially basing it on the old WWF I used to watch. And you realize that guys would you know take a step down and be in a program, and then all they need is the right angle to boost them back up. Right. So I wasn't as concerned about the push until Germany. Until I, until the, it was kind of the trifecta. One is, uh, now as I'm saying trifecta, there might only be two, but one was the complete lack of um, uh, use of my, you know, skills I brought to the table in Germany, and I guess the bi the big one was refusing to do anything with the ear, with the ear, which just seemed. But what did Rick say? Afterwards, well, he said, "Well, you know, he just said you're a heel." He and then, but is the basis of saying I was a heel was that? Uh, I mean, I could say, "Hey, just listen to the fans; they're behind this thing." Uh, but the main thing was the ratings, because they lived and died on the ratings. You know, I remember going up to the office. Uh, uh, may or may not have been the time I brought the exotic dancer up with me to get my check. I can't remember. But it was on the door, it said, welcome to WCW, home of the 3.5. I think it was 3.5 they'd done on a uh, Clash of the Champions ratings. Mm -hmm. And I think it was also the date that Harley Race brought in the Kongs, you know, uh, and Jesse had a field day talking about their ring attire. Yeah. You know, um, so it, Nobody gave the Kongs the credit. They, there was, you had that ability to see into the ratings whatever you wanted to see. Sure. And a few people had benefited. I think Rick really benefited from a, a high rating when they featured, uh, they did like a Ric Flair tribute show or something and while he was with WCW. And after that rating came out, they came out. I think Jim Hurd's state of mind was, we need that guy. We And Rick wasn't completely happy. And... WCW, and so within a few weeks or a couple months, Rick was back in WCW. Uh, and of course, he's Ric Flair, and he's always going to make an amazing mark on the product. But I think the the fuse was lit when they saw the rating he had brought in. So when Rick is having this meeting with you, you know, at different points, Rick was sort of running creative. Now, of course, he to this day denies that was the case, but he definitely yeah. had input. Yeah. Do you, did you get the takeaway or the vibe from your meeting with him? This is Rick's idea or this was something handed down to him saying, nope, they're not buying him. Um, I, I did not know. Yeah. I did not know. Um, you know, I, and I can't remember if any plans were revealed to, uh, you know, what Cactus Jack would do as a heel because I, I would have loved to have wrestled Rick. You know, I would have worked myself into the best shape I possibly could and done my best, uh, you know, work up to the standards that Rick had set. But I didn't feel the need for it because I knew that the babyface thing was working. Yeah. 
And uh, once the injury happened, I did I did work out my time in WCW as a babyface. So there was no turn. But I just thought that that was a... Missed opportunity. A missed opportunity, for sure. At, at that point, I mean, you know, I know we're skipping around a little bit. And we'll talk about what happened right here in Huntsville, Alabama one day. Okay. But did you and Rick, I mean, did you think... What did you think Rick thought of your performance and your persona in 94? Did you know that that was... Because, you know, he wrote in his book that you were a glorified stuntman or whatever he wrote. Right. But you didn't have any inkling, inclination to think he thought that way in 94, did you? No. Uh, my dealings with Rick, especially when he came back, were largely uh, positive. I'll say this. I think Rick yelled at me twice after matches and the next day apologized on both those occasions. Uh, and he didn't need to do that. That was uh, It was really you know, big of him considering where he was in the business and where I was. I, 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 I'd be lying if I told you I had any idea what Rick thought of me as a performer in 94. I don't really, don't really know. I just know sometimes we hear, we fans hear that, you know, guy A doesn't like guy B for whatever reason and therefore just dismisses him. Yeah. And sometimes that's a professional rivalry and sometimes it's just, Personally, they don't like the guy. But you didn't get that vibe at all when you're having this conversation with Rick. It felt no. like a business decision. Yeah, yeah, I did. I didn't feel like he was screwing me over. I felt like this was the answer they had arrived at, conclusion they'd arrived at, and I just I just disagreed with it. In the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. But I am curious, when they didn't go with the guy who spoke German, who did they go for that media? Is it Everybody Sting but the guy. And I'm not guy. talking about the main event guys. I mean, they, they'd use them. But they I would say they used half the bus. So if there were 25 guys on the bus, say, they probably used 10 to 12 people who were not crazy about doing right. uh, promotion to begin with. And here I am, I've pitched it to the company, told them I'm working on it. It wasn't like I was working on it from scratch because I had the um, uh, had the, the middle school German in there. I had a little background, but I would add to it. And I worked on it. I mean, I worked on it for a few hours every day to the point where I could handle myself with uh, promos, but not just promos, but appearances. So I thought that's really something cool. And later on when I went to, uh, I think that night that I lost the, the, the year, I did cut a promo. And, and like a lot of things, it wasn't nearly as good after I did it as I thought it was while I was doing it. But I think basically I was saying, you know, uh, Vader, you say to, you know, fight your fight. I say, live my life. Yeah, it's kind of corny now, uh, but I was yelling it out there. And, uh, and and I could sing German folk songs. I just thought they knew, just like they knew it would have gotten over for me to be cutting in passion promos in the United States after losing my ear, uh, that they just decided not. There's no plans for you. That's it. Not to do it. They had to know it would have worked. Sure. And I don't think they wanted it to work. Do you think um, when we're saying they, sometimes people really think we mean this guy or that guy yeah. but i've also heard from a lot of folks in wcw that man it was just for lack of a better phrase just a disorganized mess you know sometimes the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing so i almost wonder did the person that you communicated hey i've learned german i'd be excited to do some media over there maybe that never got communicated to the media department within turner you're giving them way too much credit okay right now. yeah no somebody willingly dropped the ball i, I think. see yeah not mistakenly dropped it 
Do you have any idea who it would have been? Um, I don't. I don't. So your journey to WrestleMania here 13 really begins at the Royal Rumble. You and Terry Funk are going to brawl with each other out of the ring, which distracts the referees and helps Steve end up winning the Royal Rumble. Uh, and you're doing this in San Antonio, wrestling against your wrestling yeah, mentor yeah. Uh, in a f- huge freaking dome. That had to be a cool <laughs> moment for you. The crazy thing is you can only remember a certain amount of things. Right. I think we've covered this before. You tend to remember the things that all went really well, the things that were really bad. This is an indication that this fell somewhere in the middle for me because I remember every moment of the next year, which is the the three entries. Yes. And I remember starting out the match with Terry Funk and then, you know, doing a number on The Rock, who somehow, to this day, I don't know, I believe he rolled between the second and third ropes with the garbage can on his head, which means he had to intuitively know where the ropes were. Yes. Uh, so you can go back and maybe my memory's off, but I remember The Rock doing some amazing stuff with a garbage can on his head and no <laughs> visibility. Uh, so he was a phenom in that way, knowing his way around the ring. The year before, I I cannot really remember that I was in there with Terry. I don't have that big of a recollection at all of being in that rumble, even though it was my first rumble, and I should. And it was in San Antonio, and that's when Sid, Huge crowd. Yeah, huge crowd. 48,000, somewhere around there. Yeah. That was Sid and Sean, yes. because San Antonio is Sean's hometown. Um, but I don't, I wish I did. I, I know, uh, you know, when Steve won that thing, that's what everybody wanted to see. Yeah. Right. I mean, Steve's character was really catching fire at that point, And then we'd see that payoff at WrestleMania in a huge way, but I don't remember too much about being part of it. So, uh, this is where I should creatively pretend I do. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, here's uh, the thing. That's what I wanted to talk about is it doesn't feel like your creative is really that great here. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah. you debuted right yeah. after WrestleMania 12, and you had this awesome feud right out of the gate with The Undertaker. Yeah. And um, now as we, we get geared up for what looks like WrestleMania season, it's kind of hard to identify who's your opponent going to be. And I wonder how much of that in your mind changes when Sean lost his smile. Like if WrestleMania 13 was going to go on the way maybe we originally thought, it's going to be a rematch from 12 with Brett and Sean. Do you think that would have changed what you were doing? Would that have meant more with The Undertaker? Because clearly when everything changes, it becomes Undertaker Sid and it becomes Brett and Austin. And we know how it worked out. But I can't imagine you were supposed to be tagging with Vader to take on Brett and Owen and it feel, or, or Davian Owen. It feels like something changed. Would you agree? Uh, yeah. Keep in mind, WWE's always booked around their top two or three matches. Of course. Even at Mania. And then you try to... You try to get people in some meaningful matches. Um, and I had ha- I had a great run with Undertaker working at or near the top of the card. But up until the, the, the you know, the famous interview with JR, the sit-down interview, I think, which was April 2017, I hadn't quite captured Vince. I got you. He appreciated that I was somebody who was valuable. I mean, I think that can be illustrated by the... Uh, the Montreal screw job, yeah. you know, where even after he took the punch from Brett and uh, I decided to leave the company for a day, uh, that uh, when I got off the phone with my wife, there was a message and it was Vince. It's like, wow, he thinks enough of me 
call me after this traumatic ordeal, like in, and then I was welcomed back into the fold after I, my wife perused my contract, found out that I basically breached it, couldn't work anywhere in the world for five years, at which point, you know, I, if I could have gotten to Messina, New York on my hands and knees, I probably would have done it. <laughs> but I was accepted back into the fold with no questions asked. But even that was a few, four or five months before that interview that changed everything. So I don't think Vince was fully on board with the mankind character or with me as the man behind it. I do appreciate they were trying to make me uh, fit me into the mix, but I'd say creative had been, it had been lacking a little bit, but at the same time them lacking, I'd been working house shows with Shawn Michaels. Yeah. So I guess just to add context, I mean, the thing that I think oftentimes gets sort of glossed over, Paul Bear separating from The Undertaker to be with you can't be overstated. What a milestone that was. Yeah. They had never seen it before. Right. And that's August. So then the next month, you're in the freaking main event against Shawn Michaels in yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's the crazy Buried Alive thing in October. But then it starts to feel like as we march through a few months it's like okay yeah. now what you're looking yeah. for the next big i literally thing. started my i did my angle with the undertaker the day after may say april 1st yeah so, you know don't know but within a couple of days right and so uh we worked that angle to the point where i had my first pay-per-view match at uh king of the ring that was milwaukee wisconsin and beat him uh beat him uh came back against henry godwin i think in vancouver the next month then I had the August uh, Boiler Room Brawl Huge. with Undertaker. And and I don't know if technically I won, but I walked away the winner. I believe I did. He walked away with Paul Bear. Yeah, you, you have to get the urn, and he didn't get the urn. I did. So I was 2-0 and on pay-per-views, uh, which for you uh, uh, trivia enthusiasts out there were the only two victories. <laughs> I ever scored over the Undertaker. If I had a hundred matches, so we like to exaggerate the number. I'd say I had close to a hundred matches in this business. We tend to exaggerate, sure, in, in, because we believe it in our head. But I believe I had a hundred matches or so, and my record was two and ninety-eight. But those were the two that counted. They did. So that takes us into now September. We've got uh, Mind Games with Sean. October, Buried Alive. November, I work with Undertaker again. And MSG. And MSG. And now that's run its course. Yes. So now I'm on the road in December, January, working house shows with the champion and doing my best to, to tear it down with a champion who's injured, beaten up. He's, uh, I guess, in the long scheme of things, beginning to lose his smile. But we were having some very good matches with two guys who were really banged up really hurting and finding a way to have very good matches around the loop. So it wasn't like I was out of the loop, but I was, they were at a loss, I think, for creative for me moving forward. Let's uh, read what you wrote from your book here. My eyes welled up and my face began trembling. The scene was perfect. Looking out at my career with a face full of blood, sweat, and tears. Slowly I turned, just like the heroes of old. I rode off into the sunset. I felt an immediate sense of joy when I walked through the curtain. Vince wrapped me in a big hug despite my bloodied state and his expensive jacket. Hunter was through next, and he hugged me as well. Even Stephanie was up for a hug, even with the knowledge that her dress would be history. <laughs> is, this, is this a pretty perfect exit, do you think? Yeah, uh, it really is. 
it's the, this is the perfect it's the perfect exit and if i could rewrite my own history i never would have wrestled i would have had to come back against uh randy cuz you're allowed one comeback match uh to true i would have i would have done the tag with the rock and followed it up with the match at randy and then never wrestled again cuz i think everyone accepts that you're going to have one comeback match uh i wouldn't have done a match 6 weeks later I would have done those two matches and that would have been it. But that might would have meant no edge match in 2006. But you could tell just comparatively that I was down to 270 in uh, 2004 when I came back to WrestleMania, I was back up over, up over 300 pounds. And I'd gone down from 330 to 270 in about 6 months time and I was, you know, really wanted to make that the best match it could possibly be came up short i thought in the tag team match uh the three on two at mania and then uh acquitted myself is that the right word uh a month later yeah yeah but if i could yeah that was a, that was a great ending to a career uh, Meltzer loved it too he wrote he was the classic overachiever who defied all the odds and was possibly the single greatest influence inside the ring of styles changing in the business of the past 10 years and a career destined because he wasn't that great athletically and didn't have what was believed to be the right look and physique for being mid card for life. He ended up when his career came to a close as one of the biggest five stars in North America. And even as a best-selling author in the end, he went out with the glory, but without the storyline ego, putting over the world champion twice on pay-per-view in his own specialty matches and even in tag matches on TV and in every angle over the final weeks of his career. Hunter Hearst Helmsley long since earned his spot as the top heel in the industry today, but if he is remembered someday as one of the top heels in history, he owes a lot of it to the credibility Foley gave him in these last two months. In many ways, from hard work to unselfishness about making others look good, to being a student of the game and probably truly loving pro wrestling more than nearly anything else, he gave enough of his body, perhaps parts of his brain, he gave it so willingly and so happily, whether big money was involved or not. And not for the selfish glory of bragging about scars in the bar to get over to nobody, but more to satisfy his own vision of what he wanted his role in something greater than him in this business to be. He should be admired for a few, for like few of any wrestlers of our generation. The fact that he was able to achieve his level of success without developing the star attitude that the majority of people who do it would develop and the quality of the book he wrote speaks volumes for him as a person. But as everyone knows, this story is not without a dark side. Because of his inventiveness, coming up with dangerous ways for a guy who should be able to blend into the crowd to get noticed by the crowd, the business is far more dangerous. Injuries are more plentiful and more severe than at any time. And this can't be blamed on him, as those trends were going to happen anyway. But it was his success, not someone in ECW like Sabu who never performed them on a national stage that became the wrestler who inspired a large percentage of teenagers over the past three years that felt they were never going to have the body to be a pro wrestler or the athletic ability. They felt like they could emulate him. And hey, he's still alive, walking around, and he's a superstar. Maybe he moves a little slow, but he's living proof that you can do those things and get up from them. And that stardom, not, all, not unlike Mick Foley some 20 years ago, probably from nowhere near his passion or verbal ability may come their way. And Foley did it without ending up like a zombie on painkillers, but nobody else in the profession is like him. Few were born with his mental toughness, his ability to absorb pain 
and he's going to be testing that capacity now for the rest of his life. Do you truly love the business, the history of the business, to do these things for an actual reason of being one of the legends in an industry that cares nothing about yesterday's legends? And most importantly, maybe one or two were smart enough and entertaining enough to come up with characters and more so interviews, and that's the difference between being Balls Mahoney and being Cactus Jack. Foley, after injuries, turned him into largely a comedy figure and a very successful one at that. For the last six months of 99, decided he would go with matches that would fit his legacy. So he put his body on the line and did things that most wrestlers in far better health wouldn't do in their wildest dreams. He pulled off two excellent matches and maybe an even better interview in his final weeks as a full-time active competitor. If he does retire, few, if any, ever went out in such a blaze of glory. Man, I think Dave's an underestimated writer. I agree. That's come from great writing. It's really profound, especially when you have to turn out the volume stuff. Every week. He does. That's really, you know, you can say that he's wrong about something here or there, but, uh, man, that's that's some really good writing. It's really powerful. And to acknowledge, yeah, uh, the pros and cons of what I chose to do all these years later. Um, I talked about this a little bit last night uh man that every one of uh, well I'll, I'll limit it to the ones who love wrestling and uh there was something dave wrote uh about the, somebody wondered why uh, the success of rock and batista hadn't ushered in a new era of great physiques at the top of the card and dave said well it used to be bodybuilders could look at the product see it as fake fighting an easy way to make money and get in, and now anyone with half a brain can see that's not the case. They can see that it's really uh, difficult, takes a lot of skill and athleticism that, honestly, you know, you didn't have to have. I, I, want, I don't know if I could have made it in this current day because I don't, I think you need more offense than I was capable of generating with my, Come on. all right, maybe, uh, but I also had the toys to play with. I don't know. I don't know. Sure. You, know you want to argue on my behalf. That's another discussion for another day. Um, we connect to characters we like. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's like in my business and sales, you do business with who you know, like, and trust. We fans know, like, and trust you. And that Thank will work you. in any era. I appreciate that. Hey, guys, Eric Bischoff here. And just want to call a quick timeout. I want to tell your listeners about what I've been telling everybody at over at 83 weeks quite a while now about all the cool things that are happening over at adfreeshows.com. On a new edition of The Insiders, Conrad sits down with former Turner Finance executive Dirty Dick Cheatham, talking about the internal war between WCW and Turner and the Monday Night War with the WWF. And my assistant said, hey, you're not going to believe who's down there. I said, she says, China's down there. And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, um, and I went over to her window and looked at her. Hey, did the whole, did all of the eggs is down there. Get the camera. <laughs> so, so we went down there, and of course, there were DX and Beck was down there in a fight with security. On a bonus episode of My World, Double J watches back his tag team championship match against FTR and breaks down the hilarious Briscoe Farm skit that preceded it. And they say, Can y'all be in the background talking? And the four of us are down there, really, just you know, all four of us. But Lethal and Sanjay, I said, We got to start being silly. I just started strumming the guitar. And so- started bouncing that baby, and Sanjay so- and him started doing the dose. No, I think this is, I don't know, this the funniest, but I still think it's, it's a, hilarious. It's a complete ad lib, but it played to 
you know, the line he said, them clowns, and we're down there dancing. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That's just a small taste of what we've got waiting for you with four levels to choose from. See for yourself why Ad Free Shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com.